Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and for this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jigger Shaw. He was the founder of Sun Edison in 2003. He's considered the, the founder of the power purchase agreement model for financing solar and public institutions. He went and worked at the Carbon War Room. He was the co-founder and president of Generate Capital that was financing lots of alternative energy projects around the country. And then about a year and a half ago, he was asked by the Biden administration to come to Washington to work at the Department of Energy and to be the director of the Loan Programs Office. Delighted to have Jigger today on this episode. Jigger Shaw, welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. It's great to see you again. How are you? It's so good to see you. How have you been? You know, it's great. I have to say, you know, like being part of this really exciting time with uh, all these new resources and, you know, an extraordinary year last year, right? Of, I think, 60 billion plus dollars of venture capital going into companies. And so now all those companies are, you know, coming to us at the loan programs office to help deploy their first of a kind project and, you know, business plan. And so it's, it's been an extraordinarily busy, but also just invigorating time. I was hoping you were going to say that. I, I, you know, you've been what a year and a half into the job, and I and so many others thank you and others that have gone to DC to work in the administration. And it's just got to have been the craziest of all times. But I'm glad to hear that it's it's fulfilling. Uh, you have a lot lot to do. Um, must uh, the the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, must be a, must have been an exciting thing. Were you at the White House ceremony? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that uh, you know the president's comments there and and uh, the excitement there was 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 palpable, right? I think we're in a situation right now where um, you know we're not we're not transitioning our energy system based on regulation, right? We're 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 transitioning our energy system based on superior technology. Right, people really like low-cost electricity from renewable energy. They really like battery storage in their garage, so they can actually like write out, you know, small, um, you know, issues on the grid. Um, they really love electric vehicles. They really love, you know, all these technologies. And so, I mean, even heat pumps. I find it's fascinating. Everyone's, you know, commenting on gas bans and these kinds of things. But ultimately, you know, over thirty-five percent of all new homes come in, installed with heat pumps, right? And so people are already buying heat pumps because they're a, a, a superior way of doing things, right? I mean, a lot of what the president's doing through the IRA is making sure that we onshore and reshore a lot of the manufacturing capacity that we lost over the last 40 years, making sure that we train workers so that we can actually get all of the stuff installed, right? Figuring out how we create advanced financing mechanisms, which you and I have been working on for 20 plus years to be able to make sure that it's affordable for people to reduce their energy burden. So I, I feel like I think sometimes the messaging is lost here where, you know, people think that, you know, things are being imposed on them and it's like, no, you still have consumer choice. It's just that these technologies are better. I really, I'm glad you've said that about the superior technologies. You know, my gal, uh, who's uh, strong-minded and super intelligent, she has loved her car, her internal combustion engine cars, so much, and scoffed at my EVs. When when gas hit over, went over six dollars a gallon here in California, she decided she would take over my EV, 
And oh my God, she loves it. Uh, she just, the performance, she, she just, uh, she loves it. And uh, heat pumps as well. We have them in our house and they're just, they're, they're fantastic. So good stuff. Can you describe your job at the, at the loan programs office? Yeah, I think, look, when I started Sun Edison back in 2003, we had signed a contract with Whole Foods and Staples and Ikea and all those things, right? And and you know when we went to normal commercial banks on a 20-year power purchase agreement with corporations that were investment grade, they were like, what's this solar stuff? That's just weird. I don't know that we're going to do this, right? And so that's happening again for the next set of entrepreneurs, right? People have technologies that are proven. They've gone through the national laboratories. They've licensed technologies. They've done all these things. And they go to commercial banks and the commercial banks are saying, that's weird. You know, I don't know. I don't have five other friends who've done that before. And it's, uh, you know, going to take 12 and 12 papers I have to write to convince the investment community to do this deal. And so a lot of those great projects don't get commercial debt. And I think, as you know, 100% equity financing infrastructure projects is really almost impossible, right? You really need debt in an infrastructure project. And so for all of these projects across 20 plus sectors, the loan programs office is a place where uh, they can get a fair hearing, right? That we're not competing with commercial debt because commercial debt doesn't want to do these deals. We're going to do the first, second, third, fourth projects. And then the commercial debt folks will come in on project number five, right? So we're sort of that bridge that they need to be able to get to, you know, uh, commercial debt. And we're happy to play that role. And our money isn't cheap, right? I mean, it's not super expensive, but it's not cheap. It's meant to be a fair price for the cost of, you know, doing this kind of work. But we've got also 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts behind us that can actually determine whether we're taking real technology risk or we're taking perceived technology risk. And we try to stay in the perceived technology risk, you know, camp. Um, we have demonstration programs within the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations and others that do the real technology risk uh, work. But, you know, we're excited. We've got you know, over $100 billion of new loan authority in our existing three programs and then this new 1706 program. And so we're excited to see what this next generation of entrepreneurs need uh, to be able to bring their extraordinary technology uh, into the marketplace. I can think of nobody better to do this than you. Um, and as I did a little bit of digging, it looks like the loan programs office has lent out about $30 billion and has already gotten $13 billion repaid of that capital and $4 billion in interest repaid. So it sounds like there's a, tr a solid track record of lending at the loan programs office. Yeah, that's right. So we, um, we you know, we're... We're started in 2005 and then we're funded pretty heavily in the era stimulus bill. So uh, we put out about, you know, a, a little over $30 billion uh, worth of capital uh, out the door. And as you suggested, we've already been repaid a lot of that money. Um, and, you know, we've made money. But we also, the thing people don't know is we put aside $5 billion in first loss capital. So we put aside $5 billion into what amounts to a loan loss reserve at the U.S. Treasury, right? We've lost roughly $1.1 billion um, uh, throughout our history, which is about 3.3% and basically the same as what a commercial bank loses. So, you know, right in line with, with the private sector. Um, and, you know, so 
so we've made $4 billion. We make about $530 million a year in interest for the taxpayers. Um, we set aside $5 billion for first loss, and we've lost a total of $1.1 billion, right? I think if you talk to a lot of our stakeholders, what they'll say is, look, we're just not taking enough risk here at the loan programs office. That's really interesting. You know, and, and you've had to deal with a reputation, I think, at least when I hear about your office, I always think of Solyndra and Fisker. I guess those were those are part of that $1.3 billion of losses that are, are really dwarfed by the magnitude of the benefits that have been created, right? Yeah. So first of all, I think our portfolio is performing as well or better than a commercial bank, uh, which many people accuse us of being too conservative there because you know yeah. they're, they're saying, well, given that you're working on innovation, you guys should be losing more money. Um, but second of all, look, I think, and that includes high profile, you know, uh, failures that we've had, and we will continue to lose money on new deals. I mean, this is the thing that I think people just need to recognize when a commercial bank puts money out the door or a public policy bank, in our case, um, you have to take swings at bat and some of them won't work out, right? But it was worth doing. Like, does anyone argue that like we should have not done Tesla or Fisker, Right. Like it's one of those things where if you're going to do Tesla, which obviously was a huge success, um, then you're going to do Fisker. That's how it works. You do three or four of these deals, right? And in general, when you think about the places where we've lost money, we've recovered 55 cents on the dollar. So our recovery rate has actually been quite strong, which means our underrating is actually really robust, right? So so in general, like... It, it, when you think about these new sectors we have to go into, whether it's hydrogen or nuclear or uh, long duration energy storage or you know critical minerals or other things, there will clearly be uh, losses that come from some of those loans. But I mean, as long as our loss rate on the overall portfolio is 3.3% and uh, we're making $500 million a year in interest payments for the US taxpayer, um, you know, we really are paying for ourselves um, and then some. Yeah, just just uh, to pause for a second. What did Tesla need, and what did Ford need? What when they came to you for money? What was that? This predated you, I know, but came to your office. What were they? Sure. For? Well, for Tesla, if you remember, they had already created the Roadster, so very successful car. One of my co-founders at Sun Edison had bought one of those, uh, and uh, and it was great. But now they needed to make a mass market car, right? And this was um, the Model S. And they had uh, an old factory that was available to them in California that was shut down. And they needed money to retool that entire factory to make it, you know, like ready to make electric vehicles, right? And so that was what the loan was for. Um, and, you know, Tesla has been very clear about the fact that like without that loan, they couldn't have made it through that period of time. That being said, they also had to raise over $4 billion of equity in the marketplace to get to 2018, 2019. So one of the things that I that I am very concerned about is, you know, that we balance the narratives. I mean, Tesla is an extraordinary success story and they did it on their own, right? The government enabled them through, you know, a loan and, you know, through other programs. But, you know, it really is an American entrepreneurial success story, right? And I, I think that as we help the next set of companies, using our office doesn't take away from their entrepreneurial uh, passion and, and, um, and risk-taking and success. Yeah, what a, great, what a great example. Now, you know, because we chatted back and forth on some questions I was going to ask you, you know, my company, EcoMotion, we're in the business of 
cost-effectively greening cities and corporations and campuses and working with lots of schools and universities. How would, how will your office, how can your office help some of my clients? Well, so one of the challenges you have with cities, as you know, is that the vast majority of cities really think about financing in the form of municipal bond financing and their credit rating, right? Um, to some degree, based on your success and many others, they've now learned what a power purchase agreement is for solar, which Thanks is great, you. right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they actually know that it's project finance, but they understand that it's uh, off balance sheet, right? Um, but when you think about the next set of assets, right, the school buses that we now are providing grants for out of EPA, uh, those grants don't pay for 100% of the bus. So there's some money that has to come from the school district. But then also there needs to be EV chargers put in. There needs to be, um, you know, vehicle to grid software put in, as well as uh, some of the software to run those schools as emergency shelters right off the buses in the future, right? That all costs money and we can finance it all, right? And the question becomes, do they want to use municipal bond financing? Usually it's no. Well, there's service agreements that they can sign. And there's lots of new companies that have come out that actually have replicated the Sun Edison model with, you know, school bus electric fleets, right? Or um, with, uh, you know, switching out all the police cars in their fleet to electric because police cars, you know, often have to idle all day, right? Because they have to run the electronics in the car. And so they get like three miles a gallon. And so the payback is two and a half years to go to electric cars and think about all the pollution on the street you're taken off by doing that, right? And so, so I think that the cities know where the top 10 list is of things that they should do, right? Uh, I think it's pretty obvious they should replace. I mean, we only have like 60% of all streetlights that have gone LED. Where's the other 40% of streetlights? They should all move over, right? Um, and so when you think about the top 10 list, they know what that is, but most of them think, hey, I need to pay for this out of the annual budget, right? I need to use municipal bond financing to pay for it. And in fact, what we've figured out in the solar industry can be replicated into all these other areas, including wastewater treatment plants, right? Who often have anaerobic digesters at the plant. Those digesters are running at 30% utilization because that's all the sludge that's left in the wastewater treatment plant to digest. They could bring in waste from food waste and, and other, uh, you know, animal manure, et cetera, and put it into that digester. But, you know, like that requires a different way of operating that asset, right? And so I think that cities have to recognize that there are just hundreds of extraordinary companies that are there to help them with solutions. But if they don't really feel comfortable with all of these, you know, advanced financing concepts, the DOE can help them with technical assistance. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So here, let me give you an example of a school district we work for down in Chula Vista, 49 campuses. We've just helped them do a major solar project and also some microgrid capabilities at the district office. They have 10 electric buses so far that were funded through a California Energy Commission grant. Um, they have the bus fleet is over 100. So could a district like that come to your office directly? They already are They're They're some of them are coming to us directly. And okay. some of them are signing a contract with a private company. Right. And then the private company is coming to us directly because the private company is pitching them more than school buses. The private company is pitching them school buses, plus the EV charging, plus the integration into emergency centers, plus the capability of doing vehicle to grid with those buses when they're not transporting children. And so, like, so they're giving them a full suite of services. 
Um, and so they have to decide what's right for them. They can absolutely come to us directly. And then they can also go through a private sector manager who helps to manage their fleet. Makes sense. What would a minimum, what was the minimum loan that your office would do? Well, this is the other reason why people are going through a private sector yeah, aggregator, right? Is yeah, the so, economics are there the aggr- with the aggregator. Yeah, it costs us a good two million bucks to process a loan, right? So you're not going to come into our office for a twelve million dollar loan usually, but um, but for a private sector aggregator, they could aggregate up, you know, twenty twelve million dollar projects and come to us for a two hundred forty million dollar loan, right? Right, and so so that's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, folks are choosing a private sector partner, but again, they can choose whatever they want. But what we're trying to do with the bill money that has, you know, come through last year, then the IRA money that's come through this year is help support a lot of these decision makers. So they don't feel, uh, you know, like that, that they're ill-prepared to make a decision because if they don't make a decision today and then buy a few more diesel school buses or a few more propane school buses, then we've lost that opportunity for that bus for another 12 years, which is sad, right? Like, I mean, particularly with all this money at EPA where they're giving grants to all these buses, et cetera, this is the moment for people to raise their hand and say, look, I need help. We want to do the right thing right now. We understand that climate is a really big thing and a huge opportunity for economic development, but we need help and we trust the DOE to provide that help. So we're happy to go to the DOE and ask for it. Something else. So let's let's talk about the the fund the boost in funding that just came through the the IRA. Does this uh, quintuple your office's uh, lending authority or something like that? Well, it certainly increases it a lot. Uh, let's put it that way, using technical terms. Um, when I came into office, um, you know, we had a roughly forty billion dollars worth of loan authority across Title Seventeen, uh, ATVM, which is the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, and then the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program. The IRA gives us roughly an additional hundred billion dollars worth of loan authority across those three programs, right? And so that's uh, forty billion for the Title Seventeen program, which is where we funded solar and wind utility scale projects, geothermal transmission lines, that kind of stuff. Then the advanced technology vehicle manufacturing program where we're funding new battery manufacturing plants and like critical minerals and things like that. And then you've got the tribal energy loan guarantee program where you've got an additional 20 billion in there. And a lot of tribes now are looking at, you know, putting in solar and wind and then pairing that our debt money with the direct pay that they got out of the IRA. So they now no longer need tax equity. They can get a direct pay where they can turn in the tax credit and just get cash back from the federal government on that. Um, We separately got this new program, which is the $5 billion uh, credit subsidy for 1706. And that's to convert existing coal plant, natural gas plants, you know, like recently uh, shut down plants, uh, um, things in the petroleum uh, supply chain. So refineries and pipelines and um, tank farms, and then convert those into assets that would generate property tax revenue for the local town for the next 40 years, right? And so so that um, basically pays for the points on the loan. So everyone gets U.S. Treasuries plus three eights. And so we pay for the points on the loan. And so it's until that $5 billion goes away. So if we have risky projects, then that $5 billion might support $50 billion of loan authority. And if we have low-risk projects, then that $5 billion might support $250 billion worth of loans. Right. Talk about this 1706 a little bit more because you, you sort of you covered it pretty quickly. But sure, this whole notion now the federal government's got this vision of converting the fossil fuel infrastructure to support the clean ener- energy 
revolution, I like to call it, the clean energy future. Um, is it mostly coal plants that, that need to be, I know we here in uh, LA, we're excited about the Intermountain plant that's been a large source of coal sure. for LA. And now we're looking at converting that to a hydrogen facility. Is is that the Which we put $504 million into. So, okay, uh, here we go. yeah, so, so we're already helping the, the good citizens of LA. I think in general, I'd say that, you know, the DOE has a lot of vision. Um, in this case, this is not our vision. It's entrepreneurs' vision, right? And asset owners' vision, right? So we, we have a tool, which is what 1706 is, right? And that tool has the ability to provide people with debt, but people have to apply for it. So like, it doesn't matter how much vision we have. It, what matters is how much vision the local community has. So there's a lot of local communities um, that have coal plants that have already announced that they're being shut down, right? So we've already identified of the 600 plus coal plants that have announced that they're shutting down, 300 of them are optimal to be converted to nuclear plants. The remaining coal plants are looking at um, putting in solar plus storage, right? Or uh, technologies like that, wind power, right? Some of them are looking at geothermal um, uh, if they're in the right locations, right? There's some folks who are looking at transmission lines and saying, look, we can reconductor them with next generation technologies. That qualifies for the 1706 program. There's others who are saying, hey, there's this old, you know, sort of uranium like processing facility that can be repurposed to uh, process critical minerals. Or uh, the, there are folks who are saying, you know, we've got um, an old tank farm or an old refinery, right? There's eight refineries that are that have already been announced that they're going to be shut down in this country over the next few years, right? And so, for, you know, for all of the consternation that people have had with those assets, right, particularly with pollution and things like that, um, they also had a lot of really good paying jobs, at those facilities. And many of them, you know, paid 50% of the property taxes in the town um, for a long time, right? And so, so while people want to reduce that pollution, and we support that fully, they also want to maintain the jobs and maintain the property tax revenue. And so figuring out how to do that is something that we are happy to enable. And we have a tool by which to help people. But the, you know, enthusiasm and the uh, the passion really has to come from the local communities around, you know, reimagining what they can use those assets for. So I think you've got the most interesting job, Jigger. <laughs> that sounds that just sounds fascinating. And everybody wants to know: Can we use the existing natural gas pipeline ultimately for hydrogen? Is that? Yeah, we have a we have an applicant right now that's uh, got an a natural gas pipeline that has basically been made obsolete because there's a shorter route basically to get to where they want to go. And so the amount of uh, gas flowing through that pipeline has gone down and down. So they're looking to shut it down over the next two years and then replace it with uh, another kind of pipeline. And they haven't thought about what they want to do yet, but they're, they're looking at CO2, they're looking at hydrogen and they're looking at ammonia. Um, so, which is, you know, sort of a version of hydrogen. Um, you have, to, you have so, to reconfigure the pipeline for hydrogen. I've heard that the molecules are smaller and therefore you they do. I mean, hydrogen's really hard, right? Because you've got yeah. a small molecule, but like, right. so you have to like coat the pipeline with, you know, special coating that allows you to make sure that the hydrogen doesn't escape. You've got to like change out some of the valves. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of work to do. Don't get me wrong. That's why they need our loan, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but they've already got the right of way and they've already, you know, got, got the pipeline working under the ground. So talk about this, uh, CO2 pipeline authority. That's, uh, it's new in your purview. It's so, sure. so intriguing, the idea of pushing CO2 around the country and 
Go ahead. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that that authority is with the off the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, and then they've uh, they've uh, asked us to operate the loan program for them because you know we know how to run a loan program, and the way that that works is the same way as the 1706 program works, right? So they've that one has two billion dollars worth of credit subsidy, and so we pay the points on the loan, um, and in that case, it's just U.S. Treasury, so there's no three eights. Um, and so you get a 35 year loan at us treasuries, which is pretty, pretty attractive. Um, and, and the reason that we're building it is because when you think about, um, the low hanging fruit, right? So in the IRA, there was a, a tax credit for carbon sequestration and storage that was increased to $85 a ton. Um, there are a lot of existing applications where that's pretty cost-effective to do, right? So ethanol plants, ammonia plants. Um, there's a few other industrial industrial processes where you get a, a pure CO2 stream as one of the exhaust um, pieces out of the out of the plant, right? So those are really easy to just capture the CO2, stick it in the ground, put it into a pipeline, put it into a class six well, and bury it underground, right? But you can imagine that if you're an industrial company, you don't really want to forward integrate into CO2 sequestration. <laughs> You're sort of busy running your ethanol plant, running your ammonia plant, running your chemicals plant. And so the vision here was to build these CO2 backbone uh, pipelines across the country and then put them you know, close enough to industrial centers that if you actually had one of these facilities, you could like build a 30 mile spur and just you know plug in to that backbone. And then that backbone is doing all the work around class six wells and burying it and doing it all safely and all that stuff. You're just responsible for connecting to it, right? And so that's the vision behind it. And frankly, it's been um, quite uh, interesting and very popular. Lots of people are looking at it. I think that you know, there's a tremendous amount of work being done on making sure that these things can be done safely. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, uh, conversations that are happening with the local neighborhoods and making sure that they understand, um, you know, what this entails. And frankly, it's been, uh, you know, a great boon for, you know, for installation jobs, uh, mostly union jobs. Um, and as well as like, you know, getting people to understand that, look, in the president's national climate plan, you know, we've got a uh, sequester 1.5 gigatons of carbon every single year uh, in order to meet you know our requirements because we put a lot of excess CO2 in the air we got to take it back out. Right. So in this case, though, the the industry that that has the the CO2 as the exhaust or one of its effluents um, that would be regulated to take care of its carbon. Right. It would be required to to ratchet down its carbon footprint by paying this pipeline to take it away. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So the, um, so in general, I'd say that for the ethanol industry and other industries that have a hundred percent pure stream, the $85 more than covers the cost. And so they don't have to pay anything to, um, they just have to arrange for the CO2 to go into the pipeline. Right. So there's some investment they have to make for that. But otherwise, um, the $85 really covers the cost. Now, as we um, deploy a lot of this technology, the cost will come down, right? Learning by doing. And then, um, but in the future, there could be a case that there, some of the most stubborn CO2 um, still costs above this $85 number. And then then there's going to be some requirements that might be required. But I, but I think at this point, um, there's just a huge amount of opportunity that actually pencils. Um, at eighty-five dollars, and so the the sources of pollution 
don't actually have to uh, pay anything. Um, They just have to arrange for their CO2 to get into the pipeline. Quite a concept, quite a concept. So a couple final questions. Uh, Is this, are we, is this the breakthrough time that we've all been dreaming about for renewables? Yeah. I mean, look, I think we've had this conversation before, which is there was this mistaken notion that in infrastructure, that superior technologies would um, just scale their way to 100%, right? Start at 1%, then go to 2%, then go to 3%, then get to 100%, right? And I think that, you know, what you and I have discussed for many years is that, in fact, the whole point of this is to show that we're competent, right? That that we're competent, our industry is competent, that the technology is ready, that it actually can provide the services and the values to customers, right? And then what happens is you get this inflection point. Today, that inflection point has been, you know, caused by the Ukraine conflict where energy costs have gone up, things have gone slightly haywire, and people are saying, we need to diversify faster, right? And so suddenly you get all the votes you need to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. And folks are saying, look, this is a matter of energy security. We have got to figure out how to diversify. I mean, it's not just that we're short on oil and gas, by the way, right? Gas prices are double what they were last year in terms of natural gas. But like, we're also short coal, right? And so so we need to diversify as fast as possible. We want to get to a point of energy abundance again. That's how you get everyone's electricity bills down and, and heating bills down. And to get to that abundance, we have got to take the pressure off of fossil fuels and actually reduce our consumption of them because we clearly don't have sufficient amounts of them, right? And so, so you know, I think one of these things is that is you need to like have this sort of, you know, focus mechanism, which is where we're at today, right? Everyone's thinking about energy. Everyone's talking about energy. Everyone's talking about resiliency and reliability. And they're realizing that all along we've created all these tools and these tools are ready to deploy at scale, right? Electric vehicles are ready, right? And as you suggested with your wife, um, you know, that like um, that she's now saying, oh, you know, actually uh, electric vehicles aren't so bad. Actually, I like them, you know? And so I think we're in this situation where um, people are trying things or like, oh, I should put solar in my roof. I've been, you know, pitched that for the last six years. I never took them up on it. I should do that now. And we're so we're seeing this huge acceleration of clean energy deployments because people people's minds are open to it. Yeah, that's really fun. Well put. And and by the way, with my wife, it's not that she just doesn't like it. She won't give it back to me either. <laughs> we have to get, well, a, we have to get another one. There's a way of there's a way of solving that problem, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we are. I mean, we're we're funding all the battery manufacturing in this country, right? So like whether it's uh uh, you know, the LTM deal that we announced um, with General Motors, and then we've got more coming. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to be building probably close to 800 gigawatt hours of battery uh, manufacturing capacity in this country, um, which is really exciting. And then, of course, all the critical minerals to, to feed those battery plants. And that'll, well. drive, that'll drive down the cost of the EVs and then drive up the adoption. It's it's really out well, of this is this is part of it, right? I mean, there's a lot of folks who are instinctively against mining, for instance, but part of the reason why the costs of batteries have gone up is that we need more lithium. And guess who has a lot of lithium? California in the Salton Sea and then, you know, in Nevada in a lot of their mines. And so, you know, we've got to figure out a way to bring those resources to market to get the cost of lithium down. And so um, I think that there is going to be a diversity of 
loans that we have to put out the door. Some are going to be exactly what people thought was going to happen. And some are going to be head scratchers for people going, hey, I never thought that we really needed that for the energy transition, but we do. Interesting. Yeah. Well, good stuff. I promised you half an hour. I have one final question. When I met you, you were bouncing back and forth from San Francisco to New York. And I know you've got a wife and and a young son and and now you now you're bouncing to DC. Are you how, how are you doing with all that travel? Or how have you accomplished? How are you keeping well, balance in your sanity right now, Mr. Shaw? You know, I I started Sun Edison in 2003, and uh, I started that company on the back of JetBlue that had those $99 fares from DC to Long Beach, um, and uh, and so you know I've averaged let's call it 70% travel most of my career. I'd say in this job, um, they've allowed me to just stay in the office and actually work on processing these loans. And so my travel's uh, at 10%, so the lowest it's ever been. My my son and my wife uh, thank the federal government for that. But um, but it's been, frankly, fantastic. It's been great to, um, to interact with thousands and thousands of innovators and entrepreneurs. It's been great to talk to so many companies, including Fortune 500 companies and growth companies, so many investors. And really figuring out how to get everyone to work more collaboratively together to talk to each other about how we really um, scale up all these solutions to gigaton scale. And it's just such an exciting time. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for what you're doing. Really appreciate it. So many well, of us do. As you know, we all have a very important part to play um, and really appreciate what you're doing as well. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks, Ted. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.